As you uh, find your seats, go ahead and find a copy of God's Word. Begin to locate the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair somewhere around you. Um, as you're looking for Habakkuk, don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. Most people can't flip right to it. Maybe some of you were in Bible drill when you were a kid. You know exactly where it is. But if you get somewhere near uh, Jonah, uh, Micah, you're kind of in that neighborhood, about three chapters. So, all right. And as always, if you don't have a copy of God's Word or know someone who needs one, uh, please accept one of those uh, hardback Bibles in the chairs as our gift to you. We'd love for you to take one. Um, as you're finding that, you know, there, there are many uh, profound questions uh, in life that people uh, wrestle with that some of us have likely wrestled with uh, for, for the Christian or even for those that just acknowledge the idea uh, or entertain the idea of God. There's the question of why it seems that evil is allowed to prosper while, while good doesn't, while, while evil people or wicked people prosper and, and good people suffer. Why do, why do bad things happen to so-called good people? Why do people uh, suffer? Uh, why does evil seem to win sometimes? More directly for the Christian, why does God seem silent or non-responsive in the face of certain things? Why would God allow evil to seemingly prosper and for the righteous to suffer? Uh, many look around in our day or have in their day at, at other times and ask honestly, where, where's God? In a world of human violence and human selfishness and just general human sin and brokenness, where, where's God at? question has been asked throughout history in a lot of different ways at a lot of different uh, times. Uh, pretty easy for folks, I think, to be asking these type questions in our day. Where's God in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of war, political extremism, abortion, racism, murder, injustice, and the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, for many, even for many Christians, it doesn't often look like we are being ruled by good all-wise, all-powerful God. The news cycle doesn't seem to point to that. Uh, philosophers talk about the problem of evil. If God is really all-powerful, then he could stop all evil. And if God is really loving, then he would want to stop all evil or suffering or pain or whatever. But since there is suffering and there is pain and there is, as, is injustice and it seems to run uh, rampant, then God must not either be powerful or loving, because if he was, he could stop it or he would. As one pastor, uh, this is one pastor's shortened version of the problem of evil. He says, if God is good, he would. If he could, he should. Since he doesn't, that means he isn't. That sort of sums up what the ancient philosophers came up with. Um, The reality is, in many ways, life's a mystery. Much of what happens, we don't necessarily have all the specifics and all the answers that's beyond us. And even if it was explained to us, it wouldn't be sufficient. We would want uh, more. We're often wanting more of an explanation for why things are the way they are. Desperately looking for why did this happen? Why did that happen? Or why does this not happen? It seems to be wired into us to want to know that. Just a desire that is just rises up in us anytime something happens that we're not sure or something doesn't happen. We just want to know. We want to ask questions. We want answers. And I think the question for the Christian for us is how are we to think about this? Even the desire to ask questions. How do we approach understanding a world where evil seems to win and God seems absent? And what should our posture be toward even wanting answers to that or asking 
questions of God in regard to that. When we're depressed, yet again, by the 24-hour news cycle that points to the world being so broken and God seemingly so absent, and we either ask privately to ourselves or out loud to others, isn't God going to do something? Or why isn't God doing something? When those feelings rise up yet again, how are we going to deal even with the feelings? How are we supposed to think about those feelings? Is, is what we feel okay, biblically speaking? Or are the questions themselves out of bounds? Basically, we need to sort of question our questioning sometimes and see if that's right. Well, as we always should, when we have questions, even questions about God, we go to God as his people. We go to his word. And with the particular questions that are on the table right now, we're going to go to a prophet named Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce his name. There's actually a lot of debate about that, but most people say Habakkuk. But if Habakkuk sounds better to you, then you go for it. Um, his name, okay, Habakkuk's name actually means embrace or wrestle, okay, which points to the message of the book. Okay, the times for Habakkuk may have been different, but the issues are similar. He's wrestling with the same things that people have been wrestling with throughout history, the same things we're wrestling with in our day. He may have only penned three chapters, but he answers some of the most profound questions that have ever been presented in the world. And Habakkuk not only provides answers to questions, he also answers our questions about our questioning, basically tells us how to think about whether or not we can question or how we question God. Habakkuk may be one of those places you, you may have just opened it up for the first time. It had a little little crutch to it when you open it up and you look down and there's there's no writing. It's nice and clean because we haven't spent much time there. Maybe you have. Maybe you've marked it up a lot. But my prayer is that by the end of this, we'll see Habakkuk as a place we need to continually go back to uh, just because of the depth here and what it has for us. So, Lord willing, over the next four weeks, we'll be introduced to a book that we We want to know more of even outside of or beyond or above and beyond what we're able to learn through this series. It's a small book with a with a big punch. You may look at it uh, that way. So with that set up, let's get the journey uh, started. As I mentioned, this is a four week series. So this is week one of four weeks. The plan today is sort of set up the context as best as possible and then go through the first 11 Verses. So that's where we're going to stay today. We'll have to refer to some other parts of the book just to help with the context. But Habakkuk is known as one of the minor prophets. So if you ever heard that terminology, uh, that doesn't mean that the minor prophets are of less importance. The concept of minor just points to length. Okay. Isaiah, major prophet because he has 66 chapters. Habakkuk, minor prophet because he has three chapters. So it's a it's a description of quantity, not quality. Okay. Habakkuk is also unique as a prophet because he is not really speaking to God's people, but to God himself. So prophets are often given a message from the Lord to take to the people. Habakkuk is given a word, but the book is really a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's the prophet petitioning God, not God sending the prophet to go say something. And what we'll see over the next four weeks is a bit of a progression from beginning to end over these three chapters where we see Habakkuk, as one author says, he goes from worry to worship. Or as Lloyd-Jones put it, he goes from fear to faith. 
Not that he didn't have faith in the beginning, but he's confused and he's complex. But he ends with more or less a psalm. Chapter 3 is more or less a psalm, a song from Habakkuk. From chapter 1 to 3, you have a prophet that goes from complaining to God to worshiping God. So a big shift in his attitude in a short span of time. So I would exhort you to stick around, try to make it through all four weeks of this series, because you may, you may or may not be left a little more on the, the side of worry at the end of week one or week two and not exactly get to the worship portion if you don't get through uh, all of this. Because there's some weighty, profound, really complex, perplexing even truths uh, introduced in this book. So, you know, Habakkuk is wrestling and we're going to have to wrestle with him as he wrestled with God. So th- this you're, you're probably not going to walk away from one sermon or four sermons just going, I got that. I completely understand every truth that was introduced in Habakkuk. If you do, then you have far outpaced so many theologians that have come before you. So just understand, there's a lot more digging to do after this. Uh, so let's, let's get in here and, and see how this shift plays out uh, in his life. How do you get from worry to worship, from apprehension to adoration, however you want uh, to say it? Let's, let's take that journey uh, with Habakkuk and see if we can go there as well. So uh, picking up in verse 1, chapter 1, going to read down to verse uh, 11. This is the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then the Lord answers, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces for they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men. Whose might is their God. All right. A lot of language there we don't use very often. So let's just stick with it and see if we can draw out what's going on here. Uh, Here's the game plan for the rest of this morning. Got three uh, main sections that we're going to try to unpack this in. Starting with some little more context as to what's going on. Three main sections and then we're going to end with three exhortations that flow out of those uh, sections. So three sections, three exhortations and I'll give them to you as we go and they should be on the screen. First section, let's look at a miserable but familiar context. A miserable but familiar context. Uh, context. So I'm not going to back up too far in Old Testament history, but we need to know where we are. Okay, We just kind of dove right into, we're only a, a few books away from the New Testament, but where, we, where are we chronologically speaking? What's going on in Old Testament history and really just world history 
uh, as a whole. Um, so if you think back to sort of the heyday of God's Old Testament people, of the Jews, of the Israelites, what's the king that comes to mind if you think of the heyday? Do what? David. David, all right, a man after God's own heart. So King David was the man. There's a statue in Europe about him. So you had King David come on the scene. Things are going pretty well. And they continue to go pretty well as you have Solomon, his son, come on the scene. But then you have some bad decisions start to sort of take its toll. And then you end up with some leaders that kind of run it in the ground, to put it lightly. And not long after Solomon, you end up with a divided kingdom. Okay, you got a northern kingdom, you got a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. By the time you get to Habakkuk, Israel's already been conquered by the Assyrians. So Assyrians are kind of the world power at that time. They take over the northern kingdom. They've been exiled. They're kind of no more. All right. Judah, the southern kingdom, got to hang on a little longer. And that happened in part because of a godly leader named Josiah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Josiah. So Josiah was actually eight when he took over in Judah. Okay. Can you imagine that? Okay, Jackson's eight. I can't imagine him running my house, much less all right, God's kingdom at that point. So eight years old, obviously had some counselors and stuff helping him out at that time. But eventually, eventually things went pretty well for uh, Josiah. And that had a lot to do with him bringing about reforms. Okay, so they found a scroll, likely a copy of the Pentateuch, the, the law, the first few books of the Bible. And they said, we're not doing that. We need to change things. And God kind of blessed that. And the nation's doing pretty well. You want to read about that? You can go to Second Chronicles 34 and 35. So you can dive into that uh, later. Unfortunately, Josiah really in, in an act of bravery, almost he dies in battle when he was 39 years old. He decides to join his soldiers and go out on the front lines in a battle against the Egyptians. And he's killed. I mean, we can kind of even question, like, why would God allow him to be killed when things are going so well? All right. So, so Josiah dies. And apparently, as was often the case in the Old Testament, good rulers give birth to terrible sons. Hey, you ever read the Old Testament and noticed that? Good rulers give birth to terrible sons. At the death of Josiah, you get his son Jehoiakim. Okay? He takes on the throne. Here's what Jeremiah, another prophet, had to say about him. So Jeremiah and Habakkuk, there's overlap between those two prophets. Okay, So you read them together, you'll kind of see some similarities. But Jeremiah says this about Jehoiakim. But you have eyes and hearts only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. I don't think they did presidential libraries for kings back then, but you don't want that inscribed on the wall at any point. So what Habakkuk is witnessing is a lot of setback, a reversal of all of the good that Josiah brought about all the religious reform tossed out the window. That's the context that he's living in. Not just it's always been bad, but it was good and it was bad and then it was good again and now it's being reversed. And so he's living in the midst of that. That's the context of this oracle that it's called here. Or it could be translated as a burden. The prophet is burdened. Okay, He's burdened by what's going on. And you can see by the language here just of this text, it is not going well. Okay, If you go back and read kind of the history of this, you know it's not going well, but... But Habakkuk signals this for us. He uses words like violence. Okay, you can just underline in the first five 
verses there, uh, first four verses, all the negative language, violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention. The law is paralyzed. Injustice is prevailing. The wicked surround the righteous. Like there is nothing good in those first four verses in Habakkuk's complaint. And obviously this situation is unique in many ways, but it's not unique in many ways as well. Okay, this may be a miserable context that Habakkuk is in, but it's a familiar one. Okay, we're not Old Testament Israel. Things don't operate that way. America does not equal Old Testament Israel. Okay, we often read the Old Testament and everything that's said about Israel or what Israel should do is automatically equated with the United States of America. So we kind of got to get that out of our minds. So things aren't operating the same way, but there are still similar issues at bay and similar questions being asked that we can apply on a global scale, and particularly within the context of the church. Violence and destruction and strife and contention and injustice are still rampant. Sometimes they're more rampant than they are at other times. And sometimes the wicked seem to be prevailing over the righteous. Oftentimes, the dark side seems to be winning. In the background of this book is nothing less than the breaking down of the social order, which is something that reoccurs throughout history. The breaking down of the social order, something we certainly see in our day. So it's in the midst of a context like this that it seems right that Habakkuk would be asking God some questions. God, if this is what it's like, like, you, you got to give me some answers. Something's not going well. His burden or his oracle seems justified. Which takes us to our next section. Next we see a candid but biblical complaint. A candid but biblical complaint. All right. So in light of the setting in which he finds himself, spiritual reform being stripped away, wicked li- wickedness is winning. Habakkuk, Habakkuk has two very simple but yet profound questions. Question number one, how long? Question number two, why? How long and why? Verse two, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Verse three, why do you make me see iniquity? And then why do you, God, sit idly by? Basically, why do you idly look at wrong? So you put that in our language. God, how long are we going to pray and you're not going to do anything? Why aren't you listening? And God, why aren't you doing something? Why does evil seem to be winning? That's more how we would voice it in our language. Now, here's something key that may not have been clear in the context section. The issue here is among God's people, not outside nations. So Habakkuk is complaining about rampant evil within God's own people in Judah. Verse four makes this clear. He says the law is paralyzed. What law is he talking about? There's there's no international law at that point. So he's not talking about international law is paralyzed. He's talking about the law of God. It's paralyzed. It's frozen. It's numb. It's not having any effect. It's like your hand. If it's frozen, you can't use it. It's a similar concept when he says it's paralyzed. You can't do anything with it. So Habakkuk is not bemoaning the wickedness of the nations around God's people. And what they might be doing to them, Habakkuk is bemoaning the lawlessness within God's people. He's wondering why God is not disciplining or judging his own people. Okay, we'll see the same complaints can be made about the nations. They will, in part, be made about the nations. But 
We don't need to miss that for Habakkuk, this is an in-house issue. Not talking about the wicked oppressing Judah. We're talking about the wicked in Judah oppressing the righteous in Judah. And apparently Habakkuk has been crying out for some time. How long? I don't know how long he's been doing this. But he said, how long will you not listen to me? Just been met with silence. Here's what Habakkuk knows. Okay. Kind of, kind of get in his, in his head a little bit. Here's what he knows. He knows that when he looks around at the world, what he sees is contrary to the character of God, the law of God, and the design of God. And he's complaining to God about God not doing something about that. And this is just his first complaint. If you've got subheadings in your Bible, you can look ahead and see next week we've got a second complaint coming. It's about something similar but a little bit different. It's actually about God's response. He's complaining about a non-response. Next week he's going to complain about the response. Habakkuk is not afraid to confront God with the hard questions of life. You know, as humans, we are filled with complaints. Okay? We just tend to complain in the wrong direction. We tend to talk about God instead of to God, just like we tend to talk about people instead of to people. We tend to complain about God instead of to God. And Habakkuk is showing us that it's okay and it's right to complain to God. He's taking what he knows to be true about God and he's taking what he sees in the world that is contrary to what he knows to be true. And he's turning it into a biblical complaint. I see you, God. I know you, God. I see this. This isn't you. I'm going to complain to you about this. Habakkuk's experience shows that God is willing to hear And to help and to deal with complaints. Even if, as we'll see, he doesn't get the answer or doesn't give the answer that we might expect. So you have injustice, wrongful suffering, destruction, violence, strife, conflict, all occurring, which has led to the law being paralyzed, justice not prevailing. It's actually perverted and wicked, oppressing righteous. In other words, society is full of crime, full of violence, full of corruption, and the court system is broken. And Habakkuk knows it shouldn't be this way, and he wants to know where God is. Heaven had been silent up until this point, but heaven is about to speak. And Habakkuk is about to move from complaint to confused, or better said, shocked, which we'll have to see a little more of that next week. The perplexity he experienced while God remained silent is nothing compared to how perplexed he's going to be when God opens his mouth. One writer said, when God eventually speaks, the prophet likely wished he would have kept his mouth shut. With that, we move from a candid but biblical complaint to a startling but edifying comeback. Verses 5 through 11 is what God has to say in response to Habakkuk's complaint. Don't know how long he's been asking. We know it's been a while. How long? God is speaking now. And before we look at anything that he says, I want to note what he doesn't say. Okay, so you have a prophet that brings his complaints to God, and God noticeably does not say certain things. There are things absent. First, he doesn't disagree with Habakkuk. He never says, no, you're exaggerating, that's wrong. No disagreement. And second, and what I really want you to note, he doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for complaining. Which just reinforces the last section, that it was a candid but biblical complaint. 
He's quite candid. But God does not disagree with him and he doesn't correct him. There's no hint of God being displeased with Habakkuk complaining in the way that he does. So no disagreement, no rebuke. But it's certainly not what Habakkuk expected. Okay. Again, more clarity on that next week. So Habakkuk, he's looking at the people of God. He has seen what they are up to. He's perplexed and perceived at God's inactivity. And what does God tell him to do? So he's looking at God's people. He's perplexed. And God says, I want you to look somewhere else. I want you to look at the nations. Look at verse five. Look among the nations. Look and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, verse 5 is one of those verses that by itself, it's very inspirational. It's a coffee cup, right? Coffee mug kind of verse. I'm not going to ask you if you actually have that. That's a verse you frame, put on your wall. I'm sure... That there has been a missions conference or two framed around that particular verse, which is a little odd if you know the context or if you just think about it. Because what God is doing among the nations in this context is he is raising up one of the most brutal empires that has ever existed. And they are going to be the instrument or rod of his judgment against his own people. God has told his people this would happen. You go all the way back to first Samuel. God is leading his people. And then they they say, we don't want you to lead us anymore, God. We want a king like the rest of the nations. We want to look like them. You're not sufficient for us. We want a king just like them. And God warned them. Here's what a king's going to do. Here's all the things that a king is going to do. And he says, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Habakkuk wanted justice within the nation, but what he's hearing is that God is going to bring judgment from another nation. Verse 6, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. You know anything of the Chaldeans? This is just another reference to the Babylonians. Okay, this is Babylon. This is the new emerging superpower of the day that's going to take over the Assyrians, going to take over the Egyptians. And the rest of everything we have here up to verse 11 just piles up a description of what this nation is like. Okay, they would have loved this, but this is not a good picture. They are ruthless. They are called dreaded and fearsome. Any notion of justice and dignity, it says, is self-derived, meaning they don't have any. Can you see that in verse, where do you go? Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Meaning, we have no standard of justice and dignity. We make it up on our own. Their horses are fiercer. They come for violence. They scoff at other kings. They laugh. They laugh at other rulers. They aren't scared of anyone. This is a a nation that will not be pushed around. It says they even laugh when they reach fortified cities. It says they pile up dirt and scale the walls. And that may sound rudimentary in our day with all of our uh, military tech, but this is a way, biblically speaking, in this time of describing a military that was on the cutting edge. They had found a means to get around the most fortified defenses. And they're basically saying, you cannot stop us. You built your high walls, watch them come down. This nation, according to verse 11, worships its own strength, meaning they are their own God. 
God told Habakkuk to look and be astounded. And based on what we'll see next week from Habakkuk, he is certainly astounded. His response is basically, how are you going to use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation? That's your response, God. I complain and that's what you're going to do. There is so much in these verses that perplex the human mind, perplex the Christian mind. Verse 6 is perplexing. For behold, I, this is God speaking, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's God talking. The sort of meteoric rise and takeover of Babylon can only be attributed to God and Babylon being an instrument of his wrath toward other peoples, toward his own people, much like Assyria was toward Israel. Now, As we'll see, Babylon doesn't go unpunished. God is absolutely and perfectly just. It's not as if God punishes injustice in Judah and then just lets it slide in Babylon. There's a theological theme that will surface in this book that evil contains within itself its its own seed of destruction. Babylon's not going to have the last word. As one commentator said, God allows tyrants to spring up and flourish for a little while. But they become guilty by the abuse of their power. And like a plant before it is firmly rooted, I like this, God blows on them and they wither. There are things in God's response that puzzle us, but there's a valuable lesson being introduced here. One that will be given some clarity as we go through this book and is given more clarity ultimately in the rest of biblical history that we want to measure Justice in the short term. Okay, we want justice in the short term. God is just only if God acts on our timing, in our timing, in our ways, right? God, justice is defined by us, and therefore God has to act the way we want in our timing. It has to agree with our evaluation. I would say that there's, there's, there's no stronger emotion in the human being than that of it, that when it comes to injustice, how we respond when injustice happens. Okay. I could prove that if I would just go to any little league games with you where your kids or grandkids are playing and just see the level of emotion when a ref makes a bad call. But think about it on a more serious level. What happens when we are wrongly accused? I mean, wrongly accused. When somebody says something about us that we know is not true and it attacks our character or maligns us in some way. Like we just, everything in us wants to respond. We want justice on our terms, in our timing, in our way. Habakkuk, here's the lesson that is being introduced. Habakkuk is being taught to to see God's justice in the long term. Not that there will never be justice in the short term. Okay, Judah's going to be punished. Babylon's going to be punished. But Habakkuk is being taught to see justice in the long term, where God, in his sovereignty, chooses to work on his timetable, according to his understanding of his ways and his people and what they need. God brings about justice in the way that he sees best. The uncomfortable truth is God's justice does not always work for every individual in every generation. Like we'll see from Habakkuk later on, to see God's justice, we must take our stand on the watchtower and wait and see. Even then, we may only be met, and this is sufficient, but we may only be met with God's presence and God's word. 
God's action may be delayed till later and we may not see. That's God's business. What we are slowly being introduced to here in Habakkuk is that there's a long game. There's a long game at play. And that it may seem like injustice and wrong and evil are prevailing. But in the end, God wins. Justice wins. Righteousness wins. Good prevails. Through all of this, Habakkuk is being taught that important lesson. God has an important plan, an end game for both the nations and his own people. To borrow from a, from a title from a book by Jim Hamilton, God will bring salvation through judgment. God will bring salvation through judgment. God's people will be saved. God's enemies will be judged. But the saving may not be pleasant. And we'll touch on this just a little more in a minute. As startling as God's response is here and as many questions as it may create, this is the beginning of a valuable lesson we have to own. We have to own the fact that God will one day judge. God one day will win. God one day will set all the thing, all things right. We actually have a picture of it. Okay, you can fast forward and read about it. But it, how we get there, it, it doesn't come about often in the way we want it to and in the timing we expect. You know, we, we're able to venture a guess at what God is doing. We're able to speculate. But we don't fully know all that God is doing on the pages of history at certain times in certain events. And we have to be careful about speculating. Because we get into cause and effect. Well, this is happening because of this. And the reality is we don't know. We can ultimately say this is happening because of sin. That's a simplistic answer. But we've got to be careful to say this happens because of this. What we can know for sure, based on just Habakkuk and the rest, and as well as the rest of the Bible, is that God is at work. God is always at work, and His work involves judgment. We can know that for sure, even if we don't know cause and effect, and we don't know what's going on with this event or that event. We can know that God is at work, and part of His work is judgment. God never has and never will ignore injustice in any form. All right, a lot more to say on that, but we've got three more weeks. So, exhortations. Let's pull out three of them really quickly. I say really quickly, somewhat quickly. All right, so these flow from what we see uh, in the text today and kind of what we can pull from the rest of the book. Probably a lot more, but three will do. And let's frame it like this. If we're in the position Habakkuk is in, okay, if we're looking out and wondering what is going on, okay, we probably should be in that position right now. If we, if we look up, we look, the new, look at the news, read the news, whatever we do, and we say, what in the world? Where is God in the midst of this? When is God going to act and respond? When we're in that situation, what should we do? How might we take what Habakkuk is revealing here and turn it into how we respond? So let's frame it that way. Look at three ways to respond. So first, in those times when we're questioning what's happening and even questioning God, let's first know the character of God. You might say study the character of God. You might say remember the character of God. Habakkuk in many ways is an invitation to look at the who when we don't understand the why. Habakkuk will reinforce the point that the greatest thing God can give us is knowledge of himself. The greatest thing God can give us no matter the circumstances, knowledge of himself. It's entirely understandable that if we are to look at the news cycle again, that we would walk away asking, where are you? 
Why haven't you done something yet? Habakkuk seemed to wake up in that reality every morning. Habakkuk, if he had a TV, wake up, do his quiet time, turn it on and go, what in the world? Why are we doing this again? Where are you, God? And God is quick to remind him, notwithstanding the evidence to the contrary, that he is still God. That he is in complete control. That he's not abandoned his creation. And that he continues to exert supreme and sovereign control over all things. By the time we get to the end of this book, we'll learn from Habakkuk that even everything, that if everything that gives stability to life, if every bit of that was stripped away, the Lord can still be trusted. That's where Habakkuk gets. If it all falls apart, the Lord is still trustworthy. If Habakkuk lived in our day, he might say it like this. He might talk to us and say, even if the stock market crashes, if the economy heads south or Russia wins, if everything you rely on falters, the Lord can still be trusted and you can still have confidence in who he is. If everything in the news cycle is 100% true and it goes as south as you think it might go, the Lord is still good and can still be trusted and still in control. In times of doubt, we need to know the Lord is in control. But we also need to be need to be reminded that the Lord is not afraid to listen even to our complaints in times of trouble. We need to know that we can complain to God, not about God, but to God. Habakkuk helps us to see that we don't run from God in doubt, but to God in doubt. Doubt, in fact, is a common tool used by God to deepen our faith. You see this constant refrain in the New Testament. You read the New Testament, there's this constant refrain that difficulty firms up faith. Difficulty is used to firm up faith. God is not afraid of our questions. Okay. It's a good lesson for the kids in the room. God is not afraid of your questions. Your parents may be afraid of your questions. I'm afraid of a lot of the questions I get, but God's not. He's okay with your questions. He's using the process of our questioning, even our doubting, to increase our trusting. Think about that. God uses the process of our questions, even our doubting, to increase our trusting. When things head south and we aren't sure where God is, we don't need less of God in those moments. We need more of God. I've heard over and over from more seasoned pastors. Seems like every pastor that's been doing this more than 15 years says you have to teach people how to suffer. Or you've got to prepare people to suffer. You've got to prepare people to know how to suffer. In times of severe pressure, that's where robust theology is both utilized and ignited. Okay? It's in times of severe pressure where robust theology is utilized and ignited. Meaning it's during those times that a robust theology of God is brought to bear. God brings to bear all that you know about him. But it's also during those times that it's ignited, meaning you learn so much more of God. And some of that robust theology comes alive in the process of being desperate for God. It's both it's both brought to bear and it's ignited, utilized and ignited. This is where I think that if the main aim of the church, I was listening to a couple of really bad sermons this week, so this, this may come out and kind of got me fired up. So, and it had nothing to do with Habakkuk, but if the main aim of the church or the main aim of the preaching of the church, if, if the main aim is to help you to discover yourself, keep hearing that language over and over in sermons. I want to help you discover yourself and get on this journey that God has you on and, and how he created and wired you and help you maximize yourself. 
If that's the main aim of the teaching ministry of the church or the preaching ministry of the church, you won't be ready to suffer. You will not be ready to suffer. Not saying there's not need for that and there's not truth in some of that. But when I go to texts like Ephesians 4 and I consider the preaching ministry in particular, I see there that the preaching should be done for the to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So very clear. Should equip the saints for the work of ministry, which involves what? What's the work of ministry for the saints? Building up the body until they attain what? Knowledge of themselves and the great things that they can accomplish for God. Anybody think Ephesians says that? No. Okay. So we should be equipping saints for the work of ministry, which is what? Building up the body until they attain Until everyone attains the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not let's equip the saints for the work of ministry so they can get self-knowledge and maximize themselves and live out this maximized life. It's divine knowledge. It's knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's prayers for the church in Ephesus even point to this. He doesn't pray that they would discover the best version of themselves. He prays that they would fully comprehend God and his love for them in Jesus Christ. And it's through that you're going to find yourself. It's through full comprehension of who God is and his love for you in Christ and what it took. You know what you need more than an Enneagram test? Okay. You need knowledge of God. Next time you think about taking one of those tests, go grab a systematic theology and your Bible and devour those first. Find out who God is and let him be the filter through which you discover who you are. Here's the point before I say something I need to apologize for. When the world is falling apart, we need to be reminded of the character of God. That's what we need to be reminded of. Not how great we are or how many gifts we have. We need to be reminded of who God is. We need to be reminded that at best, we are watching the world through a rolled up magazine. Okay. That's how, we, that's how we see the world, at best. We need to be reminded that God sees all and is in control of all. And all we can see is this. We need to be reminded that he's always working for his glory and our good, even if that good is painful. You know, Habakkuk is really an early version of something that's quoted around here often. It was actually embedded in one of the songs earlier, Romans 8:28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's that, that uh, quote you don't ever want to hear when things are going south. God's working for your good, brother, sister. You know, I know it's true, but it hurts a little bit. Things certainly don't seem good at times, but eventually all things work for good. That, that's, that's Paul just taking Habakkuk's theology and bringing it into the New Testament. So first we need to know the character of God. And next, in the face of a world that causes us to question, next we need to repent of sin against God. Repent of sin against God. It's clear from Habakkuk and the rest of Scripture that God will judge. God's going to judge. Evil and justice is a reminder that God is going to judge. Again, read the rest of the story. Open the Bible. Go to the end. God is going to judge. You fast forward to the New Testament and go past the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you have Paul and Barnabas. And they, they, they help us to see this even through the lens of Habakkuk. So you got Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. They've been sent out to spread the gospel, to tell people about who Jesus is. 
and what he's done and how he can reconcile through Christ. You need to reconcile to God. You get to Acts 13 and you got him preaching in a synagogue to Jews in a particular city. And they challenge those listening to believe and receive forgiveness and justification through Jesus. Here's what Paul says. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes is freed. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that you couldn't be freed from from the law. And the next part is interesting. Here's what Paul says next. He quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's bringing in judgment. He's reminding these folks he's talking to of the judgment in Habakkuk's day. And basically saying, if you reject this message, you're going to be judged just like Judah was. But this is ultimate judgment. He's pointing to a greater judgment to come. If you don't believe, you're likewise going to perish in the coming judgment. There is judgment coming. Repent and believe. That's what Paul is saying. He's bringing in Habakkuk to let them know. He's talking to an audience. They would have remembered that. They would have studied that their entire lives. He's likely also pointing to the fact that when you reject, or if you reject, then this message is going to the Gentiles, and that would have astounded them as well. Here's the point. Injustice in the world... All the wrong, all the evil, all the violence, all the corruption we look at, based on what we see in Habakkuk and the rest of Scripture, it's a sign of coming judgment and a call to repentance. It's a call to turn to God. For us, it's a call to turn to Christ for salvation. Every time you look up and you see injustice and you see violence and you see evil, it is a reminder that judgment's coming. It's a call to look at Jesus. Who took the judgment of God in our place and to trust him. Because apart from him, God's judgment awaits us. So two options on the table for everybody that exists. Two options on the table. God's judgment on Jesus in your place. Or God's judgment on you for your sins. That's it. There's no third way. God's judgment on Jesus in your place. Or God's judgment on you for your sins. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, seeing evil in the world and being astounded or wondering what God is doing, that's always a call to repentance, ongoing repentance, because it's a reminder. If you look up and you see evil and violence and injustice, that's a a call to repentance because you are reminded of the devastation that sin causes. Just a reminder of it. And it's a reminder to flee from it because you see how destructive sin is. We should never look up at the world. We should never watch the news and go, thank God that I'm not like them. Thank God that that's not me. We should look up and go, please, God, keep me from being them. And God, forgive me for how I've contributed. That's what, when we see the news cycle, it's repentance for any ways in which we've contributed. But seeing evil in the world and wondering what God is doing, for the unbeliever, it's a notice that God's going to judge one day. And one day we don't want to be the ones that have rejected his offer of grace in Jesus. We hear that warning that Paul offers there. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes is freed. And by him, everyone who believes is freed.
So we'll see Habakkuk be led through this journey of going from fear to faith, from worry to worship, where 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 the the, the just confusion leads to confession. So the question for all of us is where where is we look at all of this that's going on, where will the strife and the violence and the brokenness lead us? Okay. I pray if you don't know Jesus, it leads you to Jesus. As you look at that, it leads you to him. And I promise you, I again, some weighty, profound, often puzzling truths being introduced here. And I probably can't answer all of your questions sufficiently. But if you have any questions about any of this, I'd love to dialogue more with you. And again, I'd invite you to stick through this journey. Like, let's let's see how it ends. Okay, keep coming with us. Hopefully, some of the questions will uh, be answered. For now, we got to wrap this up. One more exhortation, uh, and this has already been hit on, but I just wanted to make sure it was clear. In the face of all that we see in the world, in the face of our questions, let it finally lead us to plead with honesty to God. Plead with honesty to God. So, one author said, "Questions and laments are part of the believer's burden. An honest dialogue with God is necessary." Is a necessary form of a relationship with him. Okay. There's a difference between grumbling and groaning. Okay. Difference between grumbling and groaning. God is not afraid of either, but he often rebukes grumbling and welcomes groaning. When life goes south, when things don't make sense, when it seems the wicked prevails, they, those are times that we need to wrestle with God, not run from God. God wants us to wrestle with him in those times. Like Habakkuk does in chapter 2, we need to, we need to take our stand on the watchtower and say, I'm, I'm staying right here until you clarify some things. I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to watch and I'm going to listen and I'm going to pray until you clarify some things. Lamentation and questioning are a gift from God to the believer. They provide a pathway of honest faith in God in the midst of difficult times. One third of the Psalms Okay, are songs of lament. One third of the psalms are songs of lament. The entire book of Job and Lamentations are dedicated to expressing the confusion and pain of unbearing, unbearable suffering by the faithful. Like there is a huge biblical category. God works through the honest worries and sincere complaints and candid questions. In a certain sense, you will know less of God until you honestly question him on certain matters. You will know less of God until you honestly go to him with questions. Holiness, sanctification, growth, godliness, peace, contentment, understanding, all of these things are born out through wrestling with God. I'm praying Habakkuk, if he does anything for us, he will teach us to burden God with our burdens. Because I'd love to see what sort of people we are on the other side of that. If we will take our cues from him and take our questions to God and let him mold and shape us through them. I'm looking forward to the rest of that journey. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word. And particularly today, a word that is, is honest and raw that shows one of your prophets complaining to you, bringing questions, profound questions about why you're silent and why you're not working, bringing them to you and you offering clarification. So, Father, we, we just pray now at the beginning of this journey where we're looking at some deep things that relate to 
some difficult things in the world and in our lives that you, you will grow us and sanctify us and help us to, in many ways, imitate the posture of Habakkuk. To know you truly and then to look up and see all the things that don't accord with you and then go to you and go, where are you, God? And why aren't you working? What are you doing? We look forward to what you're going to do in and through that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.